Hey everyone, welcome back to Great Quarter Guys, a show where the lines between freight and finance are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, Senior Retail Analyst here at Freight Waves, alongside Seth Holm, as usual. We've got a jam-packed show today. We're going to have a fantastic guest in the back half of the show. His name is Rick Helfenbein. He's the former president and CEO of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. But he also spent a few years running major retailers in the U.S., also spent three years running a trucking company on the West Coast. So he has a very well-rounded knowledge of uh, domestic trade as well as global trade. So he's going to talk to us about the port congestion, what retailers are doing to avoid the port congestion, if they can do that at all. Also talk about maybe the Suez impact on uh, on consumers and also talk about his article in Forbes from the other day where he spoke on the, the impact of uh, China seemingly overnight cutting off many prominent American brands uh, from their online presence. It's a crazy story. I'll let uh, Rick tell you more about it in the back half of the show. But we're going to have you care or not to start the show. We've got uh, a few fantastic uh, debates to get to, Seth. But I do wanted to bring up this one point because this was quite funny. Uh, it seems that Volkswagen, the, uh, the car company, is going to change its name of the American-based uh, brand. So apparently this change was uh, being planned to be made at the end of April, but they accidentally published a press release about the name change on Monday afternoon, which was first spotted by CNBC before it was taken down. The proximity of the name change to April Fool's Day uh, initially raised some suspicions that it was just a joke, but VW insists that this is a real thing. So here we are, this name change from Volkswagen to Volkswagen. They're changing the K to a T to, I guess, instill some idea that they are uh, the, the EV company of the future. I'm not sure. GM's tried something similar recently. They rebranded to uh, a little GM box that looks kind of like an electric um, plug. Uh, Seth, you have any thoughts on this? I think it's kind of silly. Uh, not, not quite to the level of pitiful, but definitely very silly. <laughs> I was going to say desperate, not pitiful. Pitiful, but um, you know, it seems like Tesla is maybe creeping into their minds a little bit here. And uh, you know, it, it we continue to see all these announcements where from uh, the legacy automakers, where you know they they're almost in a race to say, okay, we're going to have fifty percent of our cars be electric by two thousand thirty-five. No, sixty, but then none of them actually have an electric car today, um, and that's not actually mm -hmm. true. Um, I kid, but um, it's just a little bit funny. Just go ahead. And, make an electric car that sells today. Uh, that would be a good start, in my opinion. I agree. Volkswagen's got a couple in Europe, but definitely behind the ball here in the US. So let's get to you care or not. This is, of course, our ode to Highly Questionable. I'm going to give you a topic, idea, or an event. You tell me whether, whether you care or not. The first one is big headline news. This is uh, amazing stuff. The consumer spending surge that has happened since the third round of stimulus has hit. I'll let you go through the data or I can represent it after. But in any case, we have a huge surge uh, in consumer spending. Seth, you care or not? I definitely care. And uh, I, you know, I was talking about this on our Passport uh, Research webcast on Friday. And, you know, I had to go back in my head. I was like, I think this is easily single-handedly the best week of consumer spending data, hands down, that I've ever seen. Um, it was up, uh, I think it was up, what, 45% overall total card spending Bank of America on a one-year basis, and even 23% on a two-year basis, which is unbelievable when you consider uh, that, you know, consumer spending is two-thirds of the U.S. economy, and you've got spending up 23%, even over 2019. Uh, you know, Bank of America, they summed it up a lot of ways, but they said that basically our, our 7% 2001 GDP estimate uh, for real GDP looks way too low uh, based on this data, if it'll keep up. And there's some other interesting things going on that, uh, that I would characterize in the data. So, 
you know, we, we've talked ad nauseum about the, you know, the expected services to goods mix shift, but the only thing that we've seen so far is some of those goods categories continue to remain robust. And meanwhile, uh, a lot of the service categories, and particularly airlines, entertainment, lodging, stuff like that, is starting to pick up hugely on a one-year basis. And it's either, you know, down, not down much, or it's even up in some cases on a two-year basis. But I mean, the, some of the year-over-year, -year, uh, in particular, increases are just eye-popping. Uh, airlines, I think, were up like 400% year-over-year, which is not surprising. I mean, when last year at this time, things were down 90%. But uh, a lot of thoughts, really impressive data, though. Yeah, agree. If you were watching Highly Questionable at this time and they asked Poppy whether he cared about this one, this is when he'd be like, oh, see, see, yes, this is amazing news. And the the, the best news for retailers and for uh, trucking companies is that we're still spending a lot on goods. Uh, the three biggest category winners of this latest stimulus were furniture, online electronics, and clothing. Uh, the, two, the, the two smallest winners were home improvement and grocery. Those were the two biggest outsized winners throughout COVID. So far, so I agree with you. The reversion back to services, I think it's going to be really gradual. I think we're in that first stage now, and that, that first stage is at the lowest ticket items, which is you know grocery. We're seeing Americans pare back grocery spending and ramping up restaurant spending again. I don't know if you saw that two-year uh, comp on restaurant, but it's up low single digits for the last week. That is fantastic news for restaurants and, and for services in America in general. Um, and yeah, the last point I want to make is that the balance sheets are just so strong. Uh, the savings rate is right now we have the, the February number is double what it was the previous 10 year average. I know that number is going to surge back up again when we have the March data. And what all this adds up to is we've got the sonar chart here on uh, on our U.S. import uh, TEU index. It just means that this chart is going up and to the right. U.S. consumers are still buying goods. Uh, the work from home um, aspect of this, I think, shouldn't be overlooked. We're still buying furniture and uh, and home electronics to beef up our work from home today because I think working from home has been a big success for a lot of people, and and they'll probably have some sort of hybrid uh, hybrid environment for a long time. So they're 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 really solidifying those work from home spaces. So uh, the NRF National Retail Federation in their Global Port Tracker in February, the monthly report, they said that they expect imports to set new monthly records from now into the summer. So Great news uh, for 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 in, great news for the carriers uh, and for shipping companies. Not the best news for um, for retailers who are fighting for capacity right now. But I'm sure Rick will have uh, some to say on that. All right, so let's get on to number two. This was the most surprising of our uh, of our UK or NAS today, and this is American Airlines. This came out on People.com, but American Airlines says that travel bookings have recovered to 90% of their pre-pandemic levels. You care or not? I care. Uh, by the way, I find it interesting that people.com broke, broke this news uh, on the airline travel, or, or else maybe you just happen to find it on there. Yeah, but, uh, actually, I, I got I to gotta credit John Kingston. He put this in the general Slack. So I, that's okay. Awesome. Okay. But I would have expected, you know, Bloomberg or, or Wall right. Street Journal or something like that, but not people.com. Um, yeah, but um, no, that's great news. Um, you know, my first instinct, if, if you're back to 90% of, uh, you know, pre-pandemic uh, air traffic levels, and we've seen the TSA passenger data sort of concern, uh, confirming this and picking back up, you know, the, I, I would think in my head, and we talked about this offline, that um, given there's, it, it almost seems like there's no way that uh, business travel is back up to 90% of uh, pre-pandemic levels. So that must mean that leisure travel is, you know, above 100% of what, a, uh, of where it was. Um, you know, pre-pandemic. So I guess um, that's good news. Uh, I got my first vaccine on Saturday. 
Uh, got another couple of weeks to go. Got the got the Pfizer vaccine. So, um, you know, I'd like to go somewhere, too. Um, so I guess that's what, you know, I also heard on the Expedia call that um, uh, the conference call that they're starting to see a lot of pickup in, in both room reservations and travel and all that kind of stuff in the U.S. So not totally surprising to me, but uh, but good news. Yeah, the, the number wasn't surprising. Like we knew that we would recover at some point, right? But I think the pace is really surprising. And I, I think it's surprising because all the other data I'm looking at isn't matching up. Like Bank of America, for example, in this month, in this uh, weekly report they put out, they say airline spending still down 33% on the two year compared to 2019. It's improved a lot over the last two weeks. Yeah. It was that still down like 60% a couple weeks ago, uh, but still a long ways to go to get back up to 90%. Uh, and yeah, you're, you're right. We are seeing airlines pick up, especially among the older generations. I think we showed that chart a few weeks ago of the traditionalists, the people 65 plus. I mean, they're they're spending six, seven times what they were in the middle of last year. Uh, so that's great news. And yeah, I, I'd agree with the same thing on business travel. There's no way it's back. So this means that leisure is is coming uh, and making up for more than the difference. And I, I just that's really hard for me to believe. The Bank of America puts out the the um, what do they call it? Sky Tracker, uh, which is their airlines coverage every week. And they, although the US is much further along than Europe when it comes to recovering on the airlines, airline spending in intra Europe is still down 85% uh, year over year, or over the two year rather, in the latest week of data. So I think right. uh, it, it's just really hard for me to believe uh, this data. Well, but well I mean, I mean, my first instinct, uh, I think you hit on a good point there that the revenue is down way more than the passenger traffic, which just means that average ticket prices are probably not close to back to where they were. So they haven't regained that pricing power. They're having to discount to get people to do it. But, uh, but you know, that that's what you would expect to see early in the recovery cycle, right? Which is, you yeah. know, uh, tra traffic to return before pricing power, I would think. Um, yeah, I guess but it, that might be the way that they're, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but that might be the way, you know, they, they just said 90% of bookings. That is kind of a, an opaque word. We don't know whether it means, you know, the number of seat, number of, uh, tickets sold or cash, because they did say 80% of their seats are filled. But again, we don't know uh, that average ticket right. price. Yeah. But yeah. you've heard right. it here. I mean, we've, we've talked about it, um, you know, my, only my personal viewpoint, but um, I think we're going to see the biggest leisure travel boom that, we, that we've ever seen, quite honestly, in recorded U.S. history, at least for it's going to last two years. That's that's just what I think. Uh, we'll see. We'll see if I'm right. Oh, I mean, I hope you're right. It'll be it'll be good for the country. Let's Let's get on. We've got two more before we get to Rick. So let's try to move through this one. So uh, this is Bed Bath & Beyond. They launched their first of eight planned private label brands that they will launch sequentially throughout the year. Uh, this one is called Nestwell. It is a betting brand. Seth, you care or not? I care. And uh, I like a lot of the moves that Mark Triton is making. You know, this raises the question. Uh, Warren Buffett famously said, you know, what matters more, the horse or the jockey? And these types of questions, uh, these types of situations are hard to figure out because Best Buy was coming. I mean, uh, excuse me. Uh, I get the tickers confused. BBY is Best mm -hmm. Buy, and and um, Bed Bath and Beyond was coming from a very dark place before he took over, and uh, and you know you're starting to see a lot of good things happening there. And uh, I think these moves make sense. Uh, I'm sure Rick has thoughts on this as well. But you know, in my years of following retail, private label is good for margins and it's good for customer loyalty. And uh, and it, it is really it's a it's a smart move. And so I'm not surprised they're doing it. And plus, Mark's experience as a chief merchandising officer at Target, uh, they are the king of doing all this. So he learned for the best. Right. I agree with a lot of what you said. I also do care about that, about this. I think there's a bigger uh, discussion, though, just about how and I've been writing about this in point of sale, my newsletter 
is that the, the battle between brands and retailers has never been as intense as it is right now because both sides, both sides have options. You have, uh, from a brand's point of view, not only online, but physical retail, it's never been easier or cheaper to own and operate your online sales channel. And because of all the retail vacancies that we've had in the last two years, lease agreements are really favorable for if you want to go and open up physical stores. So very, uh, you know, very, um, it's, 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 it's an option to go out and open new sales channels online or physical. And then for the retailers, it's never been, there's never been more uh, direct consumer, digitally native brands that are looking for offline homes. So, and, and then yeah. on top of that, also, and I'd like to hear um, Rick's point on this, we'll, we'll ask him, is that you also have brands that have been cutting back on orders, cutting back SKUs uh, for the last year. So there's manufacturing capacity available to open up private uh, labels, especially if you're doing things in textile. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I will definitely get Rick's opinion on that. But I do want to get to this fourth one before we bring him on. So uh, this is in the same line, just on the other side. This is a brand moving uh, towards more direct to consumer. So Nike, uh, one of the most preeminent brands in the country. This is not a new move, but this is a, a big one. So they've dropped a, a, a list of new retailers, including DSW, Urban Outfitters, Shoe Show, Dunham Sports, uh, Big Five Sporting Goods, and Macy's. Seth, you care or not? I care. And I mean, I, I think this is a continuation of what they've been doing for many years. And they, they realized a lot of success uh, over the pandemic in terms of, uh, you know, selling things direct to consumer, which obviously has a lot better margins. But not only that, but you have a lot better visibility and control over the supply chain, as well as the customer data and the interaction with them and the relationship with the customer. So, uh, like like I said, uh, the the old ways of doing things uh, have been either you know put, pulled forward. Particularly in the case of e-commerce, this is you know uh, the same example of that happening. Um, you know, for some of these retailers, some of these are pretty big names. So particularly when I look at. Uh, you know, Urban Outfitters and Big Five Sporting Goods and Macy's, those are some pretty big names. And, um, you know, I just wonder if you're those retailers, what do you actually, like, for example, at a Big Five Sporting Goods, do you have a, do you continue to have a, a shoe section? Because if you have a shoe section without Nike, uh, that seems like it would have the, uh, you know, potential to uh, either anger or alienate potential customers when they come to the store. So, uh but it, it, you know, it's Nike uh, flexing their muscle, and uh, and I think it'll pay off for them. But um, you know, it could be bumpy in the near term. Yeah, that's that's a good point. We'll, we'll ask Rick that question whether he thinks they should have shoe sections. Um, yeah, I thought that this one was a a much bigger announcement than the last one that they made. I think towards the end of last year, there was a, a list of seven or eight um, retailers that were dropped there, but they were mostly, you know, we had Dillard's and Belk were kind of the only new only prominent names. This one is not insignificant. I think Urban Outfitters is extremely surprising to me because the rest of the names on the list, they are sporting goods stores or they are uh, department stores. You know, uh, and, and there's a um, there's a quote here that I do want to read who, who the, an article, uh, the writer of an article on Forbes, his name is St Sanford Stein. He said the department stores and specialties that had long been the haven for these manufacturers have slowly moved from custodian caretakers of their sacred national brands to purveyors and peddlers. And I would agree with that in, in many of the instances of these companies that they've cut off. But Urban Outfitters, I would actually argue, is not one of those. I think it's a very well curated, both online and in-person um, you know, streetwear uh, store. Where, and that's a, that's a place where Nike has, has pointed to as a place of growth. So I, that one is a bit surprising to me, but uh, the rest of them, not so surprising. Me, me as well, because uh, I, I, you know, I've been in Urban Outfitters. I'm not a regular customer, but I've certainly been in the stores. And there's only like five, maybe five SKUs in men, in men and women's, and they're all sort of 
and the inventory is very well controlled and they're not fire sailing it or anything. So I'm a little bit surprised that that was a, a list of a target uh, for, uh, you know, taking inventory away. Yeah, Urban Outfitters uh, earns really good margins on their clothes. I can know I've shopped there a few times. It's not cheap. Um, so, yeah, let's bring in Rick here because I think that is a good a good end to the Nike discussion. But uh, Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. And I love that Seth said everybody's going to travel because as little Barney once said, you're all going to need clothes. So uh, that makes us all feel a little bit better. That's right. So do you have any thoughts? Uh, I know you are, um, you've, you've run retailers that I'm sure have operated private labels uh, operations in the past. You've also worked with factories that have done private labels. What do you think about Bed Bath & Beyond and, and Mark Triton in general trying to uh, replicate the, the, the playbook from Target at Bed Bath & Beyond? Yeah, you know, the magic formula with private label has always been pretty much the same. Uh, a store would start out with brands and then they'd realize they could make more margin with private labels. So they'd switch. Then they talk about, well, you know, keep the brands in line. We'll, we'll only do 15%, then 18%, then 20%. Then they go up to 27%. But the magic number has always been about 20% of the assortment being private label. That is a win-win effect for margin for assortment. Because you got to remember one thing. When you're doing a private label business, you own the goods. When you're doing a branded business, you know, you're late, I can cancel, I can send it back. But when you own it, you own it, and it better sell because the markdowns, if you don't do it right, uh, it can be huge. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it can be a win-win and it can be a lose-lose. It's going to take time to find out if their customers will buy into that. Yeah, if we're going by that golden rule, Bed Bath & Beyond definitely has some room to run. I think they're about at 10% right now, private label uh, operations, which, of course, investors have harped on to bump that number up, probably closer to uh, your your golden, uh, your your nice uh, squish place at 20%. Um, I also wanted to ask if you had any if you had any thoughts on that question that Seth posed. You know, if you're a big five sporting goods and you, and you know, do you not have a shoe section anymore now that you don't have Nike? Does that would that upset um, customers, or do you try to you know make do with what you got? You know, it, it becomes time to uh, bring in the new brands and you know see see uh, see who you can sell that hasn't been sold before and give people a reason to come in the store. And Nike has always always been the reason to come into the store. But, you know, a lot of these stores, you know, like you said, with Urban Outfitters, they don't have a big assortment. They only carry a few SKUs. And Nike basically wants to control the environment. They can do that in their own stores. Uh, they can do that online. They can't can do, do it as well when they're selling uh, to small retail. And the other thing that that nobody really thinks about is it costs just as much to sell a small retailer as it does to sell a big one. And it costs nothing at all to sell yourself. So, uh, you know, they're looking at margin and they're looking at control and they're looking at presentation of their product. So Nike has to do what's right for Nike. But I will tell you, there are a lot of small retailers around uh, who will tell you out loud and very vocally how upset they are because they feel that Nike built their business on them and they're being abandoned. And, uh, you know. You can say that's life, but uh, the world is built on the back of small retailers, and small retailers have rights too. I got a I got a follow up for you there, uh, Rick. So Nike is abandoning some of their you know their longstanding accounts here. 
uh, intentionally, does that leave a market share up for grabs for whether it's Adidas or Under Armour or anyone else to come in and fi to fill that void and, and, and attempt to, to grow their market share? Or does just the overall uh, physical retail shoe section just kind of shrink over time slowly but surely? It, it, it'll probably shrink because um, I think there's some degree of Under Armour doing the same thing. I'm not quite as sure about uh, Adidas. But uh, overall, uh, they're going to do what they're going to do, and it's time for the new guy in the block to come in and fill the space or, or shrink the department. But, you know, shoes can be good and shoes can be margins. Shoes also take up a lot of space in the store. You have multiple sizes, multiple styles, multiple colors, and it's hard to stack because they're in boxes. It's not like, you know, T-shirts where you can just pile them up. So different world. All right, Rick, let's talk about port congestion for a moment. This has been uh, probably the most used word. I've been trying to make one of those trackings of of how many retailers have used the word port congestion in their earnings calls over the past couple of years just to see it explode uh, over the last few months. But let's talk about it. What should retailers be doing? Is, is the port congestion on the West Coast avoidable? Well, port congestion is not something that um, retailers aren't uh, very well familiar with. However, it's a little worse now than it's uh, been before. And you could say it's COVID-related or container shortage related. Uh, you know, the retailer, we're used to getting banged in the head. And it's a, it's a, you know, a double whammy here because not only the port's congested, but the cost of freight has gone up, you know, three times, four times, five times, whatever it is. So people are looking at Hmm, do I ship by sea or do I ship by air? Uh, and quite frankly, everybody would prefer to ship by sea. But then again, uh, and Andrew, you and I have talked about this, deliveries in, uh, in retail are really important. Nobody likes the ugly Christmas sweater the day after Christmas. And nobody likes the former Easter bonnet uh, the day after Easter. So you got to deliver goods on time. You got to be a retailer who can plan. Bigger retailers certainly have uh, groups of people that uh, look at tracking all the time and they will re reroute. But the one thing that the shippers really have to think about is that, you know, if this continues, if this continues to get worse and people are moving into e commerce, there's a little glitch in the U.S. law that people are taking advantage of. An individual can import under the de minimis rules up to $800 a day, duty-free and uh, actually tariff-free equally as well. So they set up warehouses, let's say, in Mexico or in Canada, and then they ship in direct to the consumer. Unfortunately, uh, if you're in the USA and you have a you know, warehouse in a duty-free zone, you can't do that. But if you're outside the country, you can do that. So, you know, advice to, to shippers, you know, <laughs> as soon as you can, clear up the ports, get the rates down, because, uh, you know, we're sitting here, we're scratching our head, particularly last week with Evergiven. We're thinking we got Evergiven on one side, never taken on the other. There's no good win uh, for people who are trying to ship right now. And I, I think the shippers understand this. But, you know, every day is a new crisis. Still rail cars, not enough containers, prices going up. You know, we got to bring this under control and it benefits everybody when it's under control. So how do you how do you handle that, by the way, Rick, if uh, if if you're left with a hard choice in some of these situations, it's either 
completely miss out on the sales and potentially alienate a customer, or you pay you know 500% year over year to transport the goods, and maybe then it's even still too late. So I guess my question is, if you were running one of the retailers, would you just choose to take the hit in the margins uh, from the transporting and just pay out the nose for transportation? Or, or is there a better way to do it, whether through bringing stuff in through alternate ports and just maximizing the efficiency of your supply chain? Well, you know, when you're in the middle of a crisis, you have to make decisions that fit <laughs> directly into the crisis. When you can do some advanced planning, you do alternate routing. You know, I'll bring a third of the goods in up north. I'll bring a third of the goods in by air. I'll bring a third of the goods in by sea. You have time to make plans. Right now, we have no time. We're in a crisis. We um, finally got the American Rescue Plan going, so people have some money in their pockets. Um, a lot of retailers right now, the stores are filled with goods from last year when we were closed, and they're looking to get everything up and running by third and fourth quarter where they honestly think people will start spending again. You know, earlier you guys were, were talking about the data. And one thing about the data that I find incredibly interesting is, you know, they're talking now that retail this calendar year will be up 6.5 to 8.2%. But that's all retail. And then, you know, when you look a little more fine-tuned at retail like our retail, uh, brick-and-mortar, um, clothing and accessory stores. You hear on you know the media that uh, sales in February up 8%. Everybody's going, that's great, except nobody digs down into the data. And clothing uh, and accessories were down 15% year over year in the month of February. Non-store retailing, or some of that is actually uh, e-commerce, uh, was up 23% in February. So you've got numbers going up, numbers going down, but logical people will tell you, we can probably get through the spring season. We may have some hits. We may have some misses. We certainly have inventory from prior seasons, but we're going into third quarter and that's where we make the money and we better get everything resolved by then because I can guarantee you People are purchasing now for fall and holiday and back to school, and they're planning their strategy because they cannot get caught. They miss this season, we'll go back in the tank. Rick, uh, I want to talk about some of those inventory planning because uh, as we talked about offline and as I've spoken about uh, in my newsletter, the, the, the prudence that uh, retailers showed in the back half of the year really saved a lot of their years. Um, honestly, investors were looking at these companies wondering where the profits have been uh, for many years because profits were heavy on on light revenues. So I, I want to ask you, how do you how would you balance if you were running a retailer? How would you balance the prudence that saved your year in the last year and, and kind of just the idea that you may have been able to reset and earn more if you don't uh, make as much and uh, you charge a little bit more on your stuff? How do you balance that with the desire to grow and gain market share. We've had a lot of retail vacancies and bankruptcies over the last couple of years. There's definitely market share for the taking. How do you balance that? It's a, I'll tell you, Andrew, it's a really good question because it's tough balancing act. You know, we say in the industry as prices go up, sales go down, and jobs get lost. And, and unfortunately, uh, that's, that's a tough thing to swallow, but it's absolutely true. Right now, you've got to sell more goods at full price. You can't afford to mark the goods down. Marking the goods down is what gets people in the store. You're caught between a rock and a hard place because you have less inventory to sell. 
Therefore, there's more demand so you can afford to keep your prices up and you have to hold your prices up so you can get the margin, so you can get enough money in to finance the fourth quarter. You know, there's not just one thing. There's like eight things that are affecting uh, retail. And and if, if you allow me, I'll just quickly... Uh, Rick, I don't want to interrupt. I got about 30 seconds for you. We got we to gotta bring this to an end. We'll give it 30 seconds, please. Keep going. Uh, 30 seconds is a little tough, but I, I'll tell you something. The, uh, a lot of the goods that come in America come from China. And the uh, RMB has you know, revalued against the dollar, so goods are costing us more. Uh, price of trade, as we discussed, is costing us more. A lot of bankruptcies, as you said. However, the new owners are asking for longer terms, which involves credit. So then we had the American Rescue Act. That's good, except for one thing. That favors the employees, not the employers. So there's a credit crunch in the market. All these things are playing together and making it a little more difficult to do business. But like Seth, I'm optimistic. People will travel. People will buy clothes. We'll figure this out. And I hope all, all the freight guys who are watching this are going to help us uh, clean up the ports a little bit and get goods moving again. Ever given on one side, ever taken on the other, we got to fix that. That is a beautiful well, way to bring well this said, yeah. And Thank you very much, Rick, for your time. Uh, I hope you have a lovely rest of your week. I'm sure we'll be seeing more of you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. All right. Well, ever given on one side, ever taken on the other, That is uh, that should be the title of the show. That's good stuff. All right, uh, that's been it for episode 65 of Great Quarter Guys, the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. We are back next week at 3 p.m. Eastern live here on FreightWaves TV, FreightWaves LinkedIn, and FreightWaves Facebook. You can always subscribe to all of our content on demand anywhere you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Also find everything on demand at FreightWavesTV.com or TV.FreightWaves.com. That is, all right, that's been it. 